Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Joshua 23, that's page 239 in the church Bibles or page 365 in the large print Bibles. Uh, We're going to be really only in this uh, section of Joshua this evening, chapter 23. But before we look at the chapter, let me read you some words which hopefully are familiar, especially since we had a wedding here quite recently. says, do you take this man to be your wedded husband? And do you solemnly promise before God and these witnesses that you will love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health, and that forsaking all others for him alone, you will perform unto him all the duties that a wife owes to her husband until God by death shall separate you. Hopefully uh, these words are familiar to you, if you are married or not married. They are, of course, uh, vows that are made on a wedding day. Uh, For us, uh, me and Paula, if I was preaching this message two weeks ago, I could have said it was 12 years ago to the day uh, that we made those vows to one another. But as you look at those vows or think about the vows you made to your husband or wife, you could say that you would make similar vows, wouldn't you, to, to God. That is, that our marriages are an exclusive union. I am married to Paula, I am not married to anybody else. There is no room for anybody else within that marriage. And Christianity is an exclusive religion, isn't it? Christianity claims that it and it alone has the truth about God. It's only through the word of God, the only word of God. It is only through Christ and Christ alone that we can know God. Union with Christ is the substance to which marriage points to. Christianity, like a marriage, is an exclusive union. And in Joshua 23 this evening, we will see how this is the case. Before we read the whole passage, just look at verse 8 in particular. Joshua chapter 23 and verse 8 says, But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. That same word translated hold fast in this passage is the same word used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 where God institutes the covenant of marriage. It's different in the NIV, but in the authorized version, in both places it uses the word cleave. In the ESV, I think it uses the word cling to. The root word is the same. It's talking of marriage. So when it says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's the same as what we're talking about here in Joshua 23, holding fast to the Lord your God. It is marriage Language. It's the language of covenant marriage. And in this passage this evening, we see that the word comes up a little bit later. Look at verse 12. God says, But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and then it goes on to talk about what happens if you do that. But that word ally is the same word. 
In the authorized again, it uses the word cleave. It's the language of marriage. And so we see here two choices or two proposals. Either we cling to the Lord our God or we cling to the nations that are around us. And the name used in this passage 12 times is the name, the Lord your God. And the title, the Lord your God, is a title of exclusivity, isn't it? Like Paula is, Paula, my wife. She's no one else's wife, she's my wife. The Lord is your God. Now, of course, we speak of it, your God, as in the people of God. He's not my God and not your God, he's our God. But here he's talking to the group of the people of God. He's the Lord, your God. And the repetition of that highlights this truth. So we can ally ourselves, we can unite ourselves, we can hold fast to the Lord our God, or we can go with the nations, the people that do not follow God, that lead us into idolatry, into destruction. And we're exhorted in this passage not to go there, but to hold fast to the Lord our God. These are Joshua's final words. These last two uh, chapters in the book, Joshua is about to die. There is last words, and last words are important, aren't they? And his last words are encouraging the people of God to faithfulness to the Lord their God. And he tells them to hold fast to the Lord your God. So let's read uh, Joshua 23 together. Joshua 23, verses 1 to the end. After a long time had passed... And the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them. Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain. The nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth, You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled, not one has failed. 
But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened, until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Amen. So at the end of uh, verse 1, we see that Joshua is coming to the end of his life. He is waxed old and stricken in age. He dies at 110 years old, so we can assume that he was at or close to this age. This chapter and the chapter following are his final addresses. And verse 1 tells us too that Israel had been in the land a long time. So we're moving on from chapter 22 and the chapters preceding to some time later. It says a long time, doesn't give exactly how long. And he sees this point as he's about to die as they've been in the land a long time, as a point where he needs to make this speech. This speech where he, indicate, where, he, where he says that they need to hold fast to the Lord their God and not go and cling to the other nations. Interesting that it's at a time of rest that he makes this speech. Interesting that it's at a time of rest. Not a time of war, a time of rest. When they were at rest, when we are at rest... It is difficult to hold fast to God. Why? Why is that? Well, they would have been prosperous. It wasn't a wartime economy, but a peacetime economy. They'd been in the land a long time. They hadn't driven out all of the Canaanites. In some passages before, we read how they refused to drive out some of the Canaanites. So these bad examples remained in the land. They were at rest with the enemy. And it would have been easy for them to imitate the nations that surround them. They were about to lose their leader. They would have perhaps over-relied on Joshua. He was about to go and when you read the book of Judges, he goes and nobody seems to rise up in his place as the leader of the whole nation. In our time, thousands of years later, God asks us to be faithful in a society where we live relatively comfortable lives. We've been, in that kind of a sense, at rest for a long time. Physically speaking, and compared to Christians in the majority of the world, we have things relatively easy in that sense. And in this society, we can struggle too, like Israel, to hold fast to God. In our prosperity, we can be tempted to be self-sufficient and not depend on God. We have bad examples all around us that it's easy for us to imitate and follow rather than hold fast to the Lord our God. We can even, in a, in, in a time where we can freely come to church every week without any opposition and where we can listen to sermons on the internet seven days of the week, 24 hours of the day, we can become over-reliant perhaps on other Christian leaders and do no study and reading of the Bible for ourselves and just spending time with God's word and with the Lord on our own. And seeing these dangers, Joshua is about to die. He calls Israel in verse 2. 
He calls the elders, the leaders, the judges and the officials. These were the representatives of the people. It it may well have been that he couldn't call the whole of the people together as one uh, big group, but he could call the elders and the leaders and talk to them and then they would pass on this message down to the people. But all Israel is represented here. This message is for everybody. Joshua wants to tell the whole nation, hold fast to the Lord your God. Well, how do we do that? How can we in our time, in our situation, hold fast to the Lord our God? How can we not go after the other nations? Well, the first thing we need to understand, actually, is that it begins with God's faithfulness to us. The basis for fidelity, we see, is God with us. We can remain faithful to God because God is with us. He is the Lord, your God. He is with you. Verse 3 reminds the Israelites of this fact. It says, you yourselves have seen. Speaking to a people who had seen God work, and you can read the preceding chapters of the book, the first 12 chapters especially, and we see God at work. We see God uh, parting the waters of the Jordan. We see God bringing down the walls of Jericho. We see God victorious at Ai, at Beth Horon, and all the cities in chapters 10 and 11. And in chapter 12, we see that victory list of all the kings that were defeated by Joshua and his army. And Joshua reminds them at the end of verse 3 there that it was the Lord your God who fought for you. So they had the victory. They'd seen all this happen, but they were reminded It was God who won for you. God fought for you. And then in verse 4, we come to the very first word of that verse, remember. They were told here to remember. And Joshua says, how I have allocated as an inheritance for you, uh, for your tribes, all the land of the nations that remain. There were nations that remained in the land. But Joshua, so confident that God gives victory to his people, allocated that land before it was even given. Why? Because God gives the victory when, in verse 5, they drive them out and take possession. But notice, in verse 5 even, the Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you. You will take possession of their land. It's God that does the work. It's God that gives the victory. But as his people, we are to take possession of what he has given to us. Remember, we used that as an example earlier on in previous messages. We used the example of an inheritance for us. We've said that if we inherit something, we've still got to go and claim that inheritance. And it's the same here. God has given them the land. He has driven out the people, but they have got to go and possess the land. But they could do it if they wanted to, because God was fighting for them. God does not command us to do anything that he will not do with us, because he goes before us. Now for us, of course, that victory is not the physical land of Israel. We're not supposed to go to Canaan and start another war or something like that, but of course not. But we have promises from God that he has given to us that we can claim. Kingdom blessings that are ours that we need to possess. That the Lord has won for us. 
And every time the people in Joshua stepped out in faith, trusting God, they were victorious because God was with them. And we can be faithful to God and receive the blessings in his kingdom, not because we are anything amazing ourselves, but because God is, because God has won the victory, because God is faithful, because our fidelity to God, our faithfulness to God is based on the fact that he is faithful to us. For us as New Testament believers, God has given us the basis of his fidelity with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you like, it's not going to be the best illustration, but it's like a wedding ring, isn't it? It assures us, it's, it's a sign of the promise. But the Holy Spirit is within us and enables us to do all that God commands. Because he's given us his Holy Spirit, we can obey what God has to say in his word. We haven't got time this evening, but go home again and, and, and read again, sorry, Romans chapters 6 to 8. Paul's argument in those chapters is that he's given us the Holy Spirit, and because we have the Holy Spirit, we can do what God wants us to do. We have the victory. Sin is no longer our master. We can obey God. We can claim his promises because he's given us his spirit. We can be faithful to God because God has been faithful to us and has given us that Holy Spirit. So as we apply this point to our lives, I would say three things. First of all, stop the excuses. We have no reason to say, I can't claim the promise of, for example, having peace that passes understanding and and not worry. Yes, you can, because God's promised it and he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can give everything to God in prayer and trust him with all things in our lives. We don't need to have the excuse of, I just can't resist that temptation. I'm just going to have to live with it and continue to fall into it. No, that's an excuse. God's given you his Holy Spirit so you can resist. We can be faithful to God because he's been faithful to us. Sin is no longer your master. You have the Holy Spirit you can obey. Stop the excuses. Now, I'm not pretending that this is easy, but I'm just saying the Bible's true. If you carry on reading in Romans chapter 8, we read, and we've been singing recently, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Secondly, and this may sound strange, talk to yourself. Talk to yourself. Not in some weird kind of a way that will uh, take you to hospital, but remind yourself of the victory we have in Christ. Tell yourself the gospel. Say it again and again. Jesus has died for me. He is the one I'm following now. I'm not following uh, my own selfish, sinful lusts. I'm following Jesus now. Tell yourself that. Talk to yourself. He's died for me. How can I do this? Read scripture out loud. That's a really good thing to do. When you're tempted, speak scripture. Speak it out loud. I mean, that's what Jesus did, wasn't it, in the wilderness? Tell yourself that I don't need to despair over my past sin. It's forgiven. It was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And you can praise the Lord. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself the gospel over and over again. And finally, thirdly, talk to each other. Let us be reminding each other of the promises that the word gives us. 
Let us be accountable to one another for our sin. Let's confess to one another, ask each other for help and accountability so that we can fight together. The wonderful thing about this uh, marriage is that we are as one the bride of Christ. We are together. You know, in the Bible, most battles are not David and Goliath. Most battles are not one-on-one. Most battles are God's people fighting together against the enemy. We can remain faithful together. We help each other, don't we? And we can remain faithful to God because he's given us the victory. He is the basis of our fidelity. But what does remaining faithful look like? What does it look like? Well, in verses 6 to 8, we see the demand of fidelity, faithfulness to God. Look again at verses 6 to 8. It says, Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not involve the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. You could have these as wedding vows, couldn't you? I promise to be strong, to be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. I will not associate with these nations. You see, these are uh, commands that we commit to. God is giving us what our, our, our vows, what we should be doing for him, our faithfulness. This is what fidelity to God, faithfulness to God looks like. First of all, uh, we see in these commands an active obedience. Active obedience. The first two commands here, be strong and be careful to obey, uh, they, they are active words, aren't they? Active commands, purposeful, things we make a determined decision to do. So the first thing is be strong or be or courageous. And although we've seen that we, we have, because of what God has done for us, all that we need to obey him, it still takes strength and courage to do what he wants us to do. It goes against the grain of society. We're in a battle. We need to, to consciously say, I will follow Jesus now. It takes strength to do these things. Just because we have all we need to do it, it still takes strength to obey But what do we need to be strong doing? It says to be careful to obey. Interesting that it says be careful to obey. We need to think about what we say and what we do in accordance with scripture. There's purpose in this. I don't accidentally obey God. I often accidentally disobey perhaps, but I don't often accidentally obey God. It takes determined purpose to obey We have to think about what we're doing, make conscious decisions. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to obey his commands. We shouldn't be wandering around aimlessly in our Christian lives. We have a purpose to glorify God. Now for these people here in Joshua, it says the book of the law of Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament. But for us, we have the whole canon of scripture. We have the word of God. And we need to be careful to obey it. That means that we need to be thinking about what we're doing. We need to purposely read it, purposefully apply it. Think about what is this saying to me? How am I going to do this today? 
And if you think about the New Testament, the words used to describe the Christian life are also active. We're told that we're soldiers. We're told that we're laborers. We're told that we're athletes. You know, no one who's going to be in the Olympics next year is wandering around aimlessly just going to turn up at the Olympic Games and win a medal. They're training. They're working. They're trying hard. And we applaud them. But when some Christians come and we, they say, I'm really you know, working hard and, and obeying the scriptures and trying my best, sometimes we get called legalists. If we were an athlete, you'd be applauded. We should be trying our hardest. We should be looking at these commands and doing what they say with all that we've got. Because we're striving, aren't we, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So these are active words. We're not just going to, don't wander around in your Christian life aimlessly. Look at the Bible, do as it says, make it your purpose. But secondly, we, we hold fast through personal holiness and purity. So we see we hold fast through active obedience and then through personal holiness or purity. The next three commands show a separation that's required for God's people. It says, first of all, do not associate with these nations. Now this does not mean don't talk to non-Christians. It does not mean don't talk to non-Christians. That would be silly, wouldn't it? But it does mean don't be joined with them. Don't be allied with them. In verse 12, a bit later on, which we will read, but I'll mention it now, it says, don't intermarry with them. And it's the same for us. Don't marry non-Christians. Don't join with them. We had a case uh, one time of someone that was uh, going to marry a non-Christian. And she said that she can only find one verse in the New Testament that tells her about not being unequally yoked. And that might not even be about marriage. I said, well, just read the whole of the Old Testament. The whole of the Old Testament talks about the people of God intermarrying with unbelievers and they were led into idolatry and into sin. Don't join with them. Don't do it. God says that here. It's our faithfulness to God that calls us to not intermarry with unbelievers. But for those of us that are not thinking about marrying unbelievers, we can still associate. There's places you know we shouldn't go. There's things we shouldn't invest our money in. Sometimes we have to look a little bit strange. But that's okay, isn't it? If we looked exactly the same as everybody in the world, there'd be a problem, wouldn't there? What would be the reason for them to come to faith if all that we can say is, well, just come, you know, don't change, just be as you are? It's so tempting to think that if we start acting more like the world, they may come to faith. You know, we don't have to be with it, we have to be with him, don't we? We have to be with God. So don't try and win unbelievers by thinking I'm going to try and be like them. Win them, grab them with a passion for Jesus. Talk about him. Amaze people with how amazing Jesus is. Talk about Jesus. Show them who he is. Show them how the Bible presents God. Don't just say how Jesus makes you feel. Show them who Jesus is. Love them. Win them with love for them. Be hospitable. Listen to them. Care for their needs. Be practical in helping them. Grab them with holiness. Let them see that you're different. You know, the, the, the world hates nothing more than a hypocrite, doesn't it? That's one of the accusations we get all the time. Don't be one. Live out what you're supposed to live out as God's people. That is not associating with them, but that is sharing Christ with them. 
Secondly, it says, do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. So be careful what you talk about. In this case, it's invoking the names of their gods, or in other words, their idols. What's an idol or a god? An idol is anything that replaces the Lord, the true and living God, as your God. So people put all sorts of stuff before God. People put becoming famous as their all in all in life. They put respect for themselves and by other people. They put their health, materialism, to be liked. All those kind of things can be an idol put before God. And what we really desire and what we really are passionate about is what we talk about. That's invoking their name, isn't it? That's why we should want to talk more about Jesus, isn't it? He should be our greatest passion. And we invoke the names of these gods when we talk about them as if they are God. As if when we depend on them as our God instead of the true and living God. In the context of marriage, imagine if I went home and started talking to Paula about my ex-girlfriends, or not that there was that many of them, but, or um, you know, all those kind of things, or, and started talking to her about women I might see on the TV. How is she going to feel? When you're with your wife, you talk about your wife, if you're talking about, t- talking about her. But our love and attention and devotion should be towards your wife, shouldn't it? Not to something else or someone else, except, for, of course, for the Lord. But if you love the Lord, you will love your wife. And wives will love their husbands. But it's the same with God. You think, how, how, you know, when, we, when we just talk about anything but God, it's the same kind of a thing, isn't it? We should want to talk about Jesus. It's not to say we can't talk about anything else, of course, but he should be our greatest passion. And then it says, you must not serve them or bow down to them. Now, notice a spiral here. There, there's association, then there's invoking the name of, And then they're swearing by them and serving them and bowing down to them. There's a spiral that gets worse. It begins with association. It then goes into invoking their name and then it spirals into bowing down and serving them. And it just highlights to me the importance of avoiding sin like the plague. If something is going to cause you to sin, cut it out straight away. Don't even associate with it. Don't go there because before you know it, you'll be invoking its name and bowing down and serving it. Cut it out in the first place, early. Because otherwise we're going to end up looking just like the world and being no different from anybody else. We need to be looking more like Jesus, don't we? And we serve them by giving our all to our idols instead of to God. And it happens all the time. We give our money and our time and our conversation and our thoughts to something other than God. We need to be a pure and a holy people which we are if we do, as verse 8 tells us, hold fast to the Lord your God. Now some of you may be thinking here, well, why should I do this? All I've heard so far from Joshua is, uh, God's given me victory, and, I don't like to, and, I, and I've got to work for it, and I don't like work. And I don't want to look strange in front of other people. So if I start obeying the Bible, I might look a bit strange. Why should I do this? I've got victory anyway. Some of you may be thinking that. Well, Joshua chapter, or this, in this chapter, in verses 9 to 16, we see the, the motivation for fidelity. 
the motivation, or motivations rather, for fidelity. And we see here positive and negative motivations for remaining faithful to God. And we ask ourselves the question, at least let me be honest with you, I ask myself this question sometimes. Is it really worth following Jesus? Because you see all around people telling you, no, it's not worth it. And you can ask, is it worth following Jesus? And when we look at this, we see absolutely yes, every time. It's always worth following Jesus. Why? What's the motivation? Well, first of all, in verses 9 and 10, we're motivated by God's power. Motivated by God's power. Look at verses 9 and 10. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. We see here, looking back at the past, he has driven out before you in the past. So the Israelites could look back at the past. They could see, as we've said, what God has done for them. And they could say, yes, my God did that for me. He's a powerful God. He drove out nations way more powerful than Israel. They were driven out by God. He is a powerful God. But they can look at the present. In verse 10, it says, One of you writes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. Uh, This is a quote from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32 and verse 30, which we read, um, if you were following the home group notes, we read Deuteronomy 32 at home group, and it says, how could a, uh, chapter 32 verse 30, how could one man chase a thousand, or two put 10,000 to flight, unless their rock has sold them, unless the Lord has given them up? How can we fight these battles? How can we have victory? How can it be that we're a thousand times stronger than our opponents because God is with us, and he is a powerful God? So they looked back at the past. They saw God is powerful. They looked at what they were able to do in the present and they saw God is powerful. And we can do the same, can't we? We can look back at the scriptures. We can look back through church history. We can look back in our own lives and our own testimony and we can say our God is a powerful God. He has done awesome things. And then we can look at the present and we can say that's the same God that I worship today. And he's a powerful God and there's nothing that, through, that he cannot do through me. He's a powerful God. We're motivated by God's power because God doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't given us the power to do. He doesn't ask us to do something impossible. It's only impossible when we try to do it on our own without God. But with God, all things are possible. They could fight now because God was with them. And we know that's true, don't we? We know the the verses of Scripture. If God is for us, then who is against us? He who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. We know, we know that truth. But we need to know it here, don't we? That God is powerful. Secondly, we're motivated by love for God. Look at verse 11. It's a short verse. It says, so be very careful to love the Lord your God. We're motivated by love for God. Love here begins as a decision. Again, it's a careful thing. Be careful. So it's a, a, a purposeful decision. I decide to love Jesus. This means that love for God actually begins in the mind with our understanding We know who God is. We see who God is. We read the scriptures. We see how awesome and wonderful and all that God has done for us. We meditate on what God has done for us. We realize that he loves us so much and we love him. 
We have to be careful to love him. It's a decision. Love is a decision, isn't it? It's something we do. I don't always feel in love with God. I don't wake up every morning dancing around in praise. But when I think about God, and I think of what he's done for me, and I read the scriptures and I meditate on it, then your heart, your, it goes to your heart and you can praise God. Be careful to love. Because he has loved us so much, hasn't he? So there's positive, there's God's power and God's love and love for God. But what about the negative? Well, we come to verse 12, don't we? But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you mean to marry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out those nations before you. Instead, there will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. If they ally with the other nations, notice something here, God will let them do it. So for us, if you ally yourself with sin, do you know what God will do in judgment to us? He will let you sin. He will let you. When God allows us to sin, that's judgment. Why? Because look what it becomes in verse 13. Snares, traps, whips and thorns. You see, Satan sells us a lie. He tells us this is going to be really good. God says, I'll let you do it, but it's going to be a snare and a trap and a whip and a thorn. You see? We're sold a lie and we fall for it so often. But sin is painful. Sin is destructive. And in judgment, sometimes God allows us to sin. And when you think about sin, what a terrible judgment that is. Now consider for a moment the awfulness of sin. You see, Satan makes it look good, but it's an awful thing. I was reading, uh, I've read, sorry, the book called The Doctrine of Repentance by the Puritan Thomas Watson. And he gives, I'm not going to tell you them all, you'll be thankful to know, but 20 evils that are in sin. I'll read you some of them very quickly. It says, sin is a recession from God, he says. Every step forward in sin is a step backwards from God. Sin besmears with filth. Sin is an odious ingratitude to God. There is a deceitfulness in sin. Sin feeds the sinner with delightful objects and then makes him mortgage his soul. Sin has a spreading malignity in it. It doesn't hurt only man's self, but others. Sin, he says, is an absurd thing. It makes us the devil's sport, and only a fool wants to do that. You see, sin is terrible, and sin is miserable. And when we use our minds to think through what we're doing, it may help us to choose to cling to God and not to that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See sin for what it is and use it as a motivation to obey. Sin is terrible. It is awful. It is just what it's described here. It is a snare and a trap, a thorn and a whip. Awful, painful, horrible things. And when we choose to cling to that, this is what happens to us. It's a judgment from God. 
And the final motivation for obedience is found towards the end in verses 14 to 16, which is the faithfulness of God. We should be motivated by the faithfulness of God. Now Joshua, we've said, was about to die, and he reminds the people of how faithful God has been to them. Every promise has been fulfilled, he says. He said it earlier in chapter 21 at the end as well, when summarizing the allocation of the land. Every promise God made has been fulfilled among you. They had been at rest a long time. They had experienced the faithfulness of God. They knew that God is the God who does what he says he will do. And for us, as Christians, how wonderful that we can sing of the faithfulness of God. It's a wonderful consolation for us, isn't it? That God is faithful in keeping all of his promises. But it should give us something to ponder because the faithfulness of God does not extend one way. It extends both ways, doesn't it? In that the same God who keeps those good and wonderful promises of of peace and joy and and all those things is the same God who says, I'll chastise those whom I love. He's the same God who says, I will condemn those who reject me. He's the same God who is faithful in his love and his wrath. It's not a one-way faithfulness that's all lovey-dovey and, and you know, candy floss and sweeties. It's two ways. It's both ways. God is a God who is loving. He loves his people. He's faithful. It's wonderful. But he's a God of wrath and he's faithful in both. And in verse 16, it says that if you violate the covenant the Lord your God, of, the, of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. And this happened to Israel. They were not faithful to God and they perished from the land that God has given them. Now then, what about us? Can a true believer in Christ ever be kicked out of the kingdom of God because he has been unfaithful to God? Well, a true believer in Christ will never be kicked out of God's kingdom. We have assurance of salvation because it's God who has saved us and called us. But a true believer in Christ will also not persist in disobeying God and not return to him. That's the difference, isn't it? I am a Christian, I love Jesus, but I still fall. But I come up and I ask God for forgiveness of my sin, I repent and I just go, I try again. But if I was to say I'm a Christian and I was to fall into sin and I would say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to carry on. I've got to question my standing with God. Now, we're not to walk around in fear that we'll lose our salvation, but if you don't care about sin, you've got to question your relationship with God. You see, we're saved, and we have God's faithfulness to us. We are secure in his kingdom, but that doesn't mean that we apply that with complacency towards sin. Because sin is a snare and a trap and a thorn and a whip. And if we have that kind of an attitude towards sin, we must at least question, am I really his? Brothers and sisters, let's remain faithful to God. He is the basis of our fidelity. The demands of fidelity are faithfulness to God. 
And he gives us many, many motivations to remain faithful. Let me close with reading uh, some words that Jesus said. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about abiding in Christ, abiding in the vine. It's another uh, marriage language, covenant language. And in chapter 15, verses 9 to 11, John writes of what Jesus says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands, I remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Later in the book of 1 John, This same author writes, we love him because he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, let us abide in Christ. Let us be faithful to him. Let us stand and sing to him. We're going to sing a song of dedication to God. Oh Jesus, I love thee. Let's stand together. And sing from our hearts of the love that we have for God that he has first given us.